Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz, and what I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes and luminaries from the sports science community, and what has come to be expected, I'll provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. But before I get started, I want to give a shout out to Mudgear, makers of the best training and racing gear in OCR. Mudgear was the first compression gear built tough enough to help you conquer obstacles. When you race this season, look on the podium. You'll see top pros wearing Mudgear. Built tougher for OCR and made in the USA. Nothing else compares on the course. Check it out at mudgear.com and use my promo code DHP for a 10% discount off your order. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. Okay, guess what? I'm back again. It's been a while, and I apologize. I've just been so freaking busy, and uh, my my gal been having lots of trouble with her hip, and just seems like one thing or another. But the good news is, I have Kristen Swan Kurtz with us. She has been helping me with a lot of things these days, and I thought I'm going to put her back to work one more time. Beyond the call of duty, Kristen, say hello to folks. Hi, everybody. She's back. Thanks for having me on, Rich. I'm back. Can't get rid of me. <laughs> yep. So we're going to do a Q&A, right? Yes. These questions, it's a Q&A um, from the good folks over at Spartan Foro. Um, we asked the team, there's about almost 13,000 of us, um, what do you want Rich to answer? So um, we have a whole host of questions from the team. Well, I get a lot of questions, and whenever I'm kind of in doubt, not sure what to do, I uh, reach back into the Q&A bag, and uh, people seem to like it. So I try to be smart. I'm not always smart, but I, I try to at least be honest <laughs> and uh, forthcoming as best I can. So um, keep me honest, okay? No problem. You got it. So let's go ahead and hit these questions. Sure. Um, all right, I'll pull one out of the hat. Uh, Sean Delaney. So Sean had meniscus surgery. Um, the doctor said he shouldn't run anymore. What do you think about that? Well, I don't want to get in the way of his doctor. <laughs> no, you know I'm going to get in the way of his doctor. But... <laughs> oh, God. So, I, you know, to be honest, I, I prompted that question. I really badly wanted somebody to ask that question. And the reason is because... Doctors, now, if there's doctors listening, I, I want to be as candid and respectful as possible. You go to a doctor because you're in pain. 99% of the reasons why someone visits a doctor is because something is badly wrong. And the doctor's first line of attack is to relieve pain. And most of orthopedic concerns are elective. You go in with a back pain. If it's critical enough that the pain is just insurmountable, they're going to do something about it. There's going to be some surgical intervention. They're probably going to go in there and do a little cleanup work and try to get you out of this pain problem. With a torn meniscus, there is pretty much the same circumstance going on there. 
And in some cases, it can't be avoided. You need to have some type of intervention to relieve the problem. So for example, let's say that you've really got a debilitating tear in the meniscus and it's flapped over and your knee locks up on you. And every once in a while when you go to do whatever it is you do, you could be just walking down the street and that little piece of meniscus flaps over, gets in the way and all hell breaks loose. Your, your knee locks up and I've had that, that. have you had that happen? I tore both and two, both of my knees. Yep. That, you know Sometimes what it just comes. Just you know what out. I'm talking about, right? I do. I do. And then you get to that place and there's not really much left to do but to go in there and do a little trim job. Generally, that is a good solution. But I want you to think in terms of what this meniscus really is. It's essentially a gasket between the femur and the tibia. And it's, a, it's kind of a, um, a slippery surface over the bone that causes the bones to glide uh, against one another smoothly. So when we talk about running injuries, when we talk about somebody that's got a serious problem from the way they've been running, it could be a function of volume. And incidentally, I, I spoke to a, a girl, I'm not going to use her name, uh, on the phone just the other day. And as a matter of fact, it was somebody who was referred to me from Amir at 4.0. That's all. That's the only tip I'm going to give you or a clue I'm going to give you. <laughs> And, it out. and she'd been running 100-mile races. And the prognosis for the knees for her was pretty bleak. And so they send me some video to get a look at what she's doing. And my God, no doubt she's tearing up her knees just the way she's landing. So let's try to imagine that there's a wear spot on this meniscus because of the collision that occurs every time you make ground contact. So you get to this place where eventually, through the repetitive trauma to this meniscus, it starts to degrade, and it could potentially tear or just be disrupted some way or another. Then they look at it, and clearly this is a problem. Clearly this is where inflammation is coming about. Clearly this is you know, potentially causing some kind of a flap or fold over or some particulates that are floating around in the joint. And they want to go in there and clean it up. And then the next thing that comes out of their mouth is don't run anymore because you're damaging your knees and one day you may have to have a knee replacement. You don't want to ever hear that from a doctor because it scares the crap out of you, especially if you really love to run. And if it hurts every time you run, clearly that's a problem, right? So think about it in terms of this gasket once again. If you were to change the dynamic in which you make contact with the ground so you're no longer abrading that region or area of your meniscus, you get back onto the slippery surface and the joint starts to articulate the way it was designed to, to function, lo and behold, there's no more pain. And I can tell you that through experience, and, and it's not always going to be across the board guaranteed to have happen, but I can't even begin to tell you how many people have come to me with some fashion of knee problem, and we change the dynamic in the way they're running, and the problem goes away. Your joint was designed to articulate in a particular path. And when you insult that particular path by heel striking, 
driving the load directly up into your knee, um, some inversion where you're breaking the natural path, you've got issues with stability, you've got issues with mobility. All these things kind of add up, and if you continually get into this pattern of beating it down, then yeah, you got a problem. And barring any other advice, the doctor's gonna gonna win. He's gonna say, look, don't do it anymore, and or we're gonna need to do some surgery. The doctor's not trained to teach you how to correct your running flaws. He doesn't have right. the time or inclination to try to correct those flaws. He's got no time. He's gonna tell you, the knee's jacked up, we can clean it up, and he's not gonna even be bothered by you asking him, what if I change the way I run? What if I get off my heels? What if I, you know, this whole, they're not going to have that conversation with you. They never do. So that's why I really felt very strongly about this particular circumstance because I see it all the time. And as a matter of fact, there's somebody who's supposed to attend our clinic in Killington. And lo and behold, he's got a knee issue. He's got a Baker's cyst and all this stuff because he's been disrupting his knee joint. And uh, he's trying to bail, and I, I try to encourage him to come anyway, because every now and then we get lucky. Every now and then we pull somebody out of the shitter and we fix it. We get him to a place where, I mean, clearly we're not going to repair the meniscus, but we're going to get him to a place where they can function, where they're not going to be in jeopardy with the way they're moving. So before you give up on yourself and have some people just start trimming away at your joint, because they can't put that back, right? The area that you've been hitting, if there if there was a surface that's exposed and the bone-on-bone -bone issue is coming off, and then they open it up by cleaning it up, they're just making more exposure. You're, you're more likely to have problems if you continue to do what you're doing. So it definitely is a hellbound train if you chase that down. So I'd say, again, before you give up on yourself, have somebody get a look at your gate, see if we can make some corrections for you or whomever it might be, and go from there. So there you go. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, I, uh, I myself opted not to get scoped um, because I was more concerned that the damage from that would outweigh um, what was happening. So I uh, just did a lot of rest and I worked on myself. And so far, so good. Yeah. So you decided instead of jacking up your knee, you throw it into your hamstring. Yeah, exactly. Now it's, <laughs> it's just it's just a moving thing. We're going to fix it. I've, t I've told you this. I've been telling you this. When we get to Bone Frog, we're going to get you sorted out. Thank you. We're going to watch you. you climb up on that podium <laughs> and you're going to put a great big glossy photograph of me over your fireplace at home for saving, saving you from yourself. I'm going to hold a picture of you next to me. If I get on that podium, Richard, you will be there. <laughs> I should get some really big cardboard cutouts. I think you should. I think like one of those big flatheads we can yeah. just carry around with us to put you next to us. On yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For all your people that get yeah. podiums, I agree. That's I the agree. only way I'm going to get on a podium. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's, let's okay. do another one. Okay, so let's see. Um, this is a big one. I know um, we, we talk about this, and this is always stressed so much at your clinics. Um, Jim Huber asks, I've heard stride length matters, and I've heard whatever it takes to get to 180 steps per minute matters. Does stride length matter, or does 180 steps override all? The big question. Well, he's separating the circumstances, and they're not meant to be separated. So uh, I thought about this question quite a bit, not just 
for this particular occasion, but you know, I have this conversation many, many times often. So here's the thing. Uh, I'm, the reason I'm sighing is because I'm going to go into one of these moronic an analogies that I always do. And, no. Oh, I know. It's going to be rough. No. Hey, we're going there. We're <laughs> going to go there. So if you've ever played tennis, you know, even by luck, you manage to hit the sweet spot of the racket and the ball travels powerfully. Right? Have you done it? Yes, except I'm not very good at tennis, which is why I do OCR. Okay, yes. so tr okay, let's. <laughs> I, I, I got you. But try to imagine. I know the analogy. Where where we're really going with this? Let, let's just say if you know what's really difficult to do, and most people don't know how to do, is serve well when they play right. tennis. Right. So you got to pitch this ball up in the air. You got to make contact with the ball, and hopefully you catch the ball properly on the racket. And when you do, all this magic occurs. Okay. Sweet spot. So what we're looking for is this sweet spot and this force production. This force production comes from making proper contact at the right point on the racket. So let's go back to the runner. When you make contact in the most premium place relative to your center of mass, and you make contact in such a way that you've engaged your system of stability, I'll call it that. Never did before. I call it that today. I like it. And because you have, and your posture and your ground contact and everything is just this, this perfect storm. What ends up happening is you're going to get good stride length because you're going to get good force off the ground, and that force is going to project you forward into your stride. Now, as it so happens. Being at 180 strides per minute will target you very, very close to the most perfect place you could land relative to your center of mass. So let's back up a bit. An average heel striking runner typically will have about 160, 165 strides per minute. And what happens is that because their foot is on the ground longer because they're reaching ahead of themselves as they overstride and land on their heel, it takes longer as their body moves towards their foot, they're on the ground longer. So if you increase your frequency, whatever it is you increase it to, you're going to find that your ground contact time is going to be shortened because the distance of your foot relative to your mass is closer. Did I confuse anybody? I'm good. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, so your ground contact is quicker. Your ground contact is closer. So if your ground contact is closer to your body, then you're going to get to stability faster. So, and I've done this before, I'm doing it again. If you were just to stand up right now and stick your foot out, I don't care, toe first, heel first, whatever, stick it out about a foot ahead of your body. And then try to pick up the trailing leg. You can't stand up that way. You're not stable. You're going to fall over. Most people will look down and just realize it ain't going to work, so they won't try it. So what we want to do is we want to get stable as quickly as possible. And the closer your foot gets to beneath you, you can't land beneath you. I've had people try to call me on this before. I've never told anybody to land under your center of mass. You can't do it. You'll land on your face. But there's a place 
that is very close to your center of mass where a lot of wonderful things are going to occur. And you're going to get stable. It's going to come from the ground right up into your pelvic floor, and you're going to get locked down into a very stable and powerful position, which is going to provide you with the ability to push off very forcefully. And when you do, this stride length that opens up behind you is going to create eccentric energy in the anterior chain of your leg through your hip, which is going to bring about a concentric return that's going to draw your knee back up in front of you, and then it's going to cause a perpetual action. You're going to end up getting force production free from gravity. It's going to get a gravitational push towards the ground once again, and you got this rhythm going. So the more force you create, th think about it like this. Again, here we go with the analogies. You jump on a trampoline. You hop a little bit. You hop a little harder. You hop a little harder. You're in the sweet spot every time, right? Because you got to land beneath your body. The higher up you go, gravity sticks you back into that trampoline, and the repercussion of hitting that trampoline with your body weight from a higher height is going to project your body higher into the air. What you're going to find is that there's a system of operation that occurs that you're not even conscious of. It all stems from making good ground contact. And that's kind of what sets the wheel in motion, so to speak. And I've told people this, and I always apologize when I say it because I'm not terribly convinced that I can prove it. But theoretically, I believe conceptually it to be true. A 2% increase in your knee carry, so knee up 2% higher than you typically might carry it, yields a 16% increase in your stride length. Wow. In order to get that little bit of a lift and make contact with the ground near your center of mass is going to give you that stride length. So what I'm getting at is you don't separate the two things. It's mastering the one thing that produces the other thing. Hitting the ground well with good posture, good frequency is going to yield a better stride length. And your speed is a product of stride length. Now, your speed could very well be a product of stride length and frequency. So you could turn your legs over faster, which will in turn cause you to run faster. The problem with that is it becomes expensive. It now becomes very uneconomical and it will potentially cause you to burn up your lactic acid is going to be produced and depending on how all that works out for you you could have a problem and also depending on when you pull the trigger on it so some people try to find speed too early by turning their legs over too quickly and they blow up been there maybe <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a sprinter. We, we know this. I'm not a sprinter. More well, okay. So like, here you are. I'm a okay. mountain goat. <laughs> All right. Try to imagine. Okay. Try to imagine you got two people running next to each other and you know, they're competitive. They're looking at each other and checking to see where the other guy's going or, you know, girls going and what you need to do in order to put distance between you and whomever that is. Right. So you start working a little harder, right? And then yep. he starts working a little harder or, or she, whomever you know, I'm trying to put this in context here. I'm, I'm a guy. So, I, right, so, so whether you be, you know, you're trying to work harder, harder, harder to take out the other person. Well, try to envision that if you were to manage your energy by increasing your stride length, 
and getting more from your run without really exacerbating the cost of work. And this can be, yeah, this could be easily measured by your heart rate. So if you start noticing that when you got to speed before, your heart rate would surge 20 beats. And through training, you're able to get the same speed without your heart rate climbing like that, you're paying wholesale. Yeah. I was just going to say when I'm after Rich, after I did the first clinic with you, I noticed that my heart rate. So I have a high, naturally my heart rate goes kind of high anyway, but I noticed when I was really hitting 180 for a while, not only was my heart rate not going up very high, I was watching it come down from where it was. It was everything was just stabilizing and going kind of smooth. Um, and it just wasn't, um, it wasn't as taxing. I felt fast at first. And then once I got into it and got used to it, um, it just felt easier. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's definitely a, a process. You, you have to work at it. I mean, it's not something that's like, oh, one day you just, you know, jack your, your cadence up to 180 strides per minute and everything goes well. It's a yeah. process. You have to teach yourself to get into that mojo. And mm-hmm. I, I have people that like, for example, let's say somebody attends a clinic, we do a VO2 test on them, we find their threshold and we tell them to run 180 strides per minute and we tell them to stay aerobic and they can't make the two things happen. It's either they're going to get their stride frequency up and sacrifice their heart rate, or they're going to sacrifice their heart rate to get their stride up. Right. Did I, did I, was it redundant or did I say that right? I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes <laughs> I, a good thing that you do, because I'm not sure I do. But you, you get where I'm going with this is that you have to get it worked out. First of all, you need to get the mechanics organized. Then your heart rate starts to plummet. It start, it'll drop for you. Uh, if you try to rein back the heart rate and then try to speed up the cadence initially because it's such foreign territory, it's not going to work. So it's a process. You have to work at it, and eventually it starts coming together. And then I get, listen, I get calls, I get emails, I get people posting to me on social media where that aha moment comes in. We're like, oh, dude, you know, all of a sudden, la, la, la happened, right? They they're, yeah. they're, they start talking about their their PR and they start talking about how they crushed this or that, or they show me the picture of them on the podium, which you know has escaped them forever, and that's really good stuff. And I have to tell you, I've said this, I, I've said this so many times because I'm so proud of it. The folks that are living nearby that I work with that come to the track and meet me at six in the morning every Tuesday morning, we never have to have a conversation about the way they're moving. Try to imagine me standing next to people running around the track and not saying anything about the way they're moving. That's amazing, especially after going to a clinic. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. But, but the point yeah. being is because they've got it worked out. Right. Now our conversation is all about the work. Now we're talking about, okay, we're going to run a 400, then we're going to run an 800, then gonna, whatever it is I throw at them, but nothing changes in respect to the way they move. Barring potentially it be a short enough of effort where they're really working the clock and they've exhausted their potential to open up their stride and all that's left is to turn the legs over faster. And that that does happen in a 200. But at the end of the day, or the end of the 200, I should say, um, you get you get to stop. So you're on fire, but you're on fire to the finish line. Now, if you tried that and... I just said, hey, by the way, instead of doing that 200, let's go two miles. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to start slowing down, right? Right. Because you know intuitively there's, it's not, that dog won't hunt. You're not going to be able to pull that off. So, 
Anyway, for whatever it's worth, I hope I answered that question as best I can. Incidentally, he's coming. I think Jim, Jim and I think he's coming to our clinic. I have to check, but I'm pretty sure he's coming. In which case, if he does, we'll sort some of that business out with him because he's close. You guys live in Jersey and you don't come to this clinic. Shame on you. Be there. Well, you Be know, I, but since, since I'm talking about that, people make a big mistake by assuming or trying to assume what I'm going to do. I have no idea what I'm going to do. Honestly, I'm telling you the honest God truth. I show up at a clinic and you'll, you'll see me pause. When we get together for that first moment, when everybody's okay, what's this guy going to say? What is he going to do? I'm sitting there thinking, okay, what's this guy going to do? What's this guy going to say? <laughs> I don't know either. You know, I just do what I do. And sometimes it spills out and it's magical. Sometimes I will take a complete left-hand turn and because and have I'm, us running barefoot in the snow. In the snow. <laughs> now, I didn't go into that track looking at the snow thinking, you know, well, this is going to be cool when I see these guys running around barefoot on the track. <laughs> but it happened, right? It was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> it's a, you know, that's that photo moment and listen, it's still it's indelibly ingrained in your brain right now. Richard equates to me running barefoot in about six inches of snow. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's what you get for snowing on me when I come to your town. It was December. It happens. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry. Ah. I, didn't, I didn't do it. Yeah. It's actually that um, that's brings to another question that one of the, the foros had. Um, Thomas Marino, he asks, um, do you recommend barefoot running on trails or do you use some kind of zero drop shoe uh, to not hurt your feet? All right. So a lot of times I talk about running barefoot and I don't want people to get the impression that I am encouraging folks to go out and do what they do barefoot because your feet need to be protected. And the unfortunate end of it is every shoe, every shoe that you put on your foot will alter your natural function. Think about that. Whether it be zero drop, whether it be a hoka with that big fluffy marshmallow sole, whatever it is you stick on your foot, you are impeding the potential information, the afferent information that your feet are looking for to tell the brain how to react. And so the most premium circumstance for you to get the information necessary to function properly is to run barefoot. Unfortunately, our environment does not allow for that. Now, I have people run barefoot quite a lot, but we scope the terrain before we get there. We're going to, I don't have anybody that's like, okay, take your shoes off and just run through there, Hiller Valley. What? I have them walk through very carefully where they intend to run to ensure that there's no foreign objects that are going to be there that are going to cause you grief. Because if you step on something that you didn't need to step on, it punctures your foot, whatever might be the bone bruise, whatever it is, it's not worth it. And I don't care how well trained you are. If you just kind of pitch yourself out there, you've run a really high risk of, of injury if you're not careful. 
or you're going to be so you're going to have so much trepidation when you're when you're running that you're not even going to be able to function properly, because now you're on on huge, you know, uh, code red alert, because you got to be careful, right? And it's better to have some protection. Now realize that when you get to these really really minimal shoes, you have just enough creative license to potentially cause problems for yourself. And now you don't have near the protection you might have had if you had a little bit more sole underneath the shoe. So I've kind of come to a place where I look for a shoe that has enough protection for my foot without over-influencing the way I move. So I, hope, I don't know that I answered his question precisely, but if you're asking me, should you run on trail barefoot or should you wear protection for your feet, I'm going with the protection. Okay. And then in terms of barefoot running for beginners, I guess you could say, what would your ideal sort of location be and how, what the distance should be? Um, I know because it, it does, it can sort of make your caps hurt a bit in the beginning, your ankles. So what's your recommendation to just for starters? Well, first of all, I don't think it does. I would beg to differ. If you get out on a grassy field, let's just say that you go, you know, you go to some school that's got a football stadium uh, soccer stadium, AstroTurf, whatever it is, and you're able to run on that pristine, natural environment, barefoot, you should not find any issue with your calf. You should not have any issues with your natural function. We're designed to run barefoot. Now, how long you run that way is another story. Not so much because you're going to cause problems for yourself, but your feet are probably too tender. You know, we're wusses when it comes to our feet because this environment that we live in, I mean, just our society being what it is, you know, as soon as you're born, oh, look at the look at pretty little baby. Let's put some shoes on it. <laughs> right? They start to make you weak from the beginning. By the way, this morning, uh, you know, I have people that come that I've been training with for years that come to see me six days a week. I'm, I'm banging the drum. Wow. I, I bang the drum six days a week. I take one day off. I used to take one day off. Now I got clients that fly in on Sunday, so I got to do that. But six days a week, I have this group of folks that, that train with me. And they've been listening to me and putting up with me for years. Today, one guy, I mean, you got to see his feet. I told him, I said, dude, you're single, keep your shoes on. A girl sees, <laughs> girl sees those feet and she's out. She's not going to put up with that at all, man. Because his toes are all funny looking. They're pointing the wrong directions. It's, you could see he's had fungus in it. I mean, his feet are oh, nasty. No. His feet are nasty, right? They're not the typical runner feet. They're just uh, jacked from the start. They're nasty. And he, he he blames, you know, wearing cowboy boots when he was a kid and all this jazz. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I got these folks to take their shoes off. You know, they come in and they want to fire up my treadmill and get out the rower and they want to get these exercise devices working. I said, I didn't tell you to do anything. Just stop. I'm in control here. I said, take your shoes off. And he looks at me like, what, uh, sock? Can I get my socks on? I said, no, I want to get those nasty feet in the daylight. I want your feet, <laughs> I want your feet to, you Set know. Set them free. Yeah. It's like uh, um, the walking dead, right? The, ah! You know, the, the, the daylight, the, the toes have not seen the light of day <laughs> since I don't know when. And I said, let's get those toes and let's see whether they can appreciate. So we started doing some functional work. One-legged work. Got them on the treadmill. Had them running on the treadmill barefoot. And uh, 
it's interesting that we were having this conversation. He started talking to me about, yeah, my brain's telling my feet what to do. I said, no, your feet are telling your brain what's going on so your brain knows how to react. So just getting that feedback from the treadmill. And both of them were running along very nicely on the treadmill. They're doing intervals, and I had them doing some other stuff. They're playing with the slam ball and things like that. But I had them running barefoot. Now, a controlled environment like that, I think it's a really good idea to get there. And incidentally, one of those other questions, and I think we can kill two birds with one stone since we're there, if you don't mind. Sure. Somebody was asking me about plantar fasciitis. Right. Cliff. Cliff Alapa. What a nightmare problem that is, right? And it's so common. So think about what we're talking about. The fascia gave way. And I started thinking about, you know, I, I don't get a chance to rest. My brain is just going 90 miles an hour all the time. But I started thinking about plantar fasciitis. Okay, first of all, fascia, connective tissue within the body, your Achilles, has the structural integrity to withstand 2,000 foot-pounds of force. Wow. You can pick up an automobile with your Achilles. That's how powerful, how dense, and how strong your connective tissue is in your body. Now, obviously, the fascia on the bottom of your feet is not as dense as an Achilles, but the material is essentially the same. And incidentally, a couple weeks back, I attended this advanced course on instrument-assisted soft tissue mobilization, and the presenter had said this to me, and it never dawned on me before, and I thought it was an interesting observation. Your connective tissue, ligaments, tendons, bone, and musculature are essentially made of the same composites. It's just a function of the, the density from one to the next material. So muscle, obviously, a lot more blood flow is more, it's softer material. And then a tendon is more dense and a bone so you, you hear where I'm going with this? It's essentially all the same stuff. So it's a function of the way you train it. If you get onto your, your trampoline, which is your plantar fascia, and you develop it and you strengthen it, I spend a lot of time barefoot throughout the course of the day to make sure my feet are good. As old and fat as I am, I can go out and I can run. <laughs> Honestly, I, I can go out and I can run in a, in a very low-profile very lightweight shoe and not come home complaining about my knees, my Achilles, my plantar fascia, none of that stuff. I don't have any structural issues when I run. I'm tired. My muscles get sore. Things like that because I'm just not in the condition I used to be in, given an old man that I am. <laughs> I know. I know. It's just life, right? But I can do it. So the plantar fasciitis is... Contrary a, a thought as it might be, where a lot of times what they have you do is protect the foot. They want Inserts, to put a, yeah. insert, they want to put a heel lift in there, they want to put an orthotic in there. All these devices cause you to get weaker. Right. You might get a little bit of uh, resolve initially because it's taken some of the work away from the fascia, but ultimately it causes you to get weaker. It's not the solution you want for a long term. And you know people that I've worked with that have, Jennifer, mm -hmm. you remember the game she was playing? She was mm -hmm. cortisone shots out the yin-yang, 
Mm-hmm. All sorts of trouble. She had me start coaching her. What did I have her do? First thing, take your shoes off. Get in your backyard. Yep. <laughs> I said, run around your backyard like a crazy woman barefoot. 30 minutes. I've seen I've seen her Garmin maps. <laughs> yeah. All around her house. 30 yep. minutes a day. She does it. Every other day. And the, the next time I saw her, which was, I don't know, months later, she was running like a deer. Yep. No pain. She has not had an issue with her plantar fasciitis since. And I'll tell you, I, the, not just once, often I've had that circumstance where I get people to get back into their natural function, let their body just reset, let the fascia find its way and start developing the natural integrity of those of that material and the problems start going away. It just goes away. Now, of late, I'm starting to think about another consideration that may be at work here and I'm not terribly convinced that I can stand behind it yet, but it's making me think, and if, if you're listening to this, look up grounding. I know you're gonna Google this when we get done. Look up grounding. That's not what I do to my kids when they're bad, right? <laughs> no. The influence that occurs when you engage the earth with bare feet, or your body for that matter. Because, and there's, there's like this cult that is suggesting that after World War II, when we developed rubber, and rubber became the principal product beneath our feet, we've insulated ourselves against the relationship with the earth. And from that point in time, we started having issues. And I've seen research where they've had people recover after a workout by lying on bare ground or walking around barefoot on bare ground. And the difference in the recovery times were, was amazing. It's, it's freaking amazing. So look at it. So I don't know whether it's the grounding. I don't know whether it's the way your foot is just kind of resetting and learning how to move again. But I think collectively those things are at ends with or developing this, this solution to the problem. So I guess my answer would be, number one, um, probably get some treatment. If you know somebody close by that is able to provide you with a decent um, instrument-assisted soft tissue mobilization treatment, <laughs> incidentally, and then some taping or maybe some flossing or all three of those things as a treatment process, uh, I would highly recommend that. But the last thing you want to do is go let the doctor pull the trigger on the cortisone shot for you. There's a limit to how much of that you could take on before you start to really create damage that's irreversible. So that seems like the thing that they want to do first. Um, there's been so many times where I've come in, whether it's my, my knee, my hip, you name it, um, my hamstring. And one of the first things they say is, you know, I'll give you a cortisone shot. Um, I feel like they've, I've been offered that way too many times. And um, I've always turned it down um, because I know it can be damaging. Um, but yeah, I feel like it's always the, the first go-to that people do instead of um, taking other preventative steps or, or a little bit more holistic look at it. Um, but I've, uh, I've been offered it quite a lot. So yeah. Well, the problem, again, it's the healthcare system in this country. They don't have the time. They right, don't have right. the time. And it's, it's unfortunate because I know a lot of physicians that are very talented people, and they can look at a problem and really have a pretty good sense of what really needs to have happen. 
but they don't have the inclination or time to do it. They're not going to sit down and say, look, clearly if you start making changes in the way you're moving, it's going to, going to help you. They're not going to go down that rabbit hole with you because they don't know where to take you with it. They're right. not likely to refer you to someone because they're afraid that if they refer you to someone that hurts you, then they've got a problem. So the cortisone shot, they know it's going to bust up the inflammation real fast. But, you know, the, the dark side of it is it's going to cause some issues with the connective tissue and you could have a problem down the road. Yep. But, but you're out of the office and they got paid and the insurance, you know, whatever the the office girl does goes in and hits F8 on a keyboard and <laughs> the insurance company kicks back a check for whatever. Yep. It's done. Yep. I, I used to be on that side of things once upon a time. I was a chief operating officer for a sports medicine facility. I had an orthopedic surgeon that worked for me. I've had a team of physical therapists, chiropractors, you name it, soothsayers. I had them all working for me. And I got on that billing end of things, and I'm looking at the outstanding debt, money owed to us from insurance companies. We bill 200 They pay us $100, $100 if we're lucky. Wow. Ridiculous. So when you start seeing that happen to your, your, your returns, then you got to double up the volume. That's your only solution. Right. Poor chiropractors, by the way. If there's chiropractors listening, brothers, I feel your pain. There's insurance companies that are dropping chiropractic care left and right. So they have got to see a ton of people. I know guys that will see 500 patients a week. Wow. Seriously, 500 patients a week. How much care do you think they're going to give those people? Because a lot of personalization. If they bill 90... They're getting 20. Wow. If they're lucky. And their their expenses haven't changed, right? They still got to pay the office staff. They still got to pay the rent. They still got to, you know, all that expense is still there. All that they can effectively change is how many people they see. Let's take another question. Gosh. Sure. Okay. So this is something I think we can all relate to, um, you know, whether it's going up or down hills, um, especially if they're technical Um should we and how can we maintain a 180 cadence um, going up, you know, a long stretch of uphills or downhills? Well, what I like to do when we do these clinics is, quite frankly, and I've never told anybody this before. I'm, I'm telling you now. So don't tell anybody, okay? Top secret information. <laughs> when we do hill repeats, I'm going to do this on Sunday. You know, we have a clinic this weekend here and I'll have, uh, you know, about 25 people we're going to do this with. The first thing I'll have them do, and I've got, I've got a hill that's probably about a, between a 30 and 40% grade, and it's probably, I don't know, 100 meters. And I'll say, okay, everybody, run up the hill. Run down the hill. I will watch them. And then I'll say, okay, now that we've done that, I'm going to set my metronome. I have, you know, I've got that speaker so they can hear it from a distance. Oh, I know that speaker. I know and, that metronome. <laughs> and so I want you to run back up the hill and try to stay at this frequency. And then I want you to come back down the hill and stay at this frequency. And I'll have them do it. And then I'll ask them, what just happened? And I will commonly hear people tell me that they found that it was easier to get up the hill and down the hill at that frequency. And then I'll say, Let's try a few other things. Now, realize going downhill, gravity is no longer the foe. It's at your back. Right. 
It's helping you down the hill. I guess to some degree that could be a problem too, right? So you have a couple things going on. It's you get fearful of your inability to control speed going down the hill, so you start to impose brakes. Right. Hill. So you start overstriding, you stick your leg out in front of yourself, and you start trying to slow your roll down the hill. Or the other thing you could do is turn your legs over faster, just like surfing, and see if you can keep your legs beneath you as you churn your legs over as quickly as possible. And then uh, the other option is you could start scrubbing speed off by traversing on the downhill. You might employ some rapid steps, some bounding steps, and throw in that traversing every now and then to control what's happening to you. But regardless of the way you approach the downhill or uphill, it should be a function of something that you've tried, you've researched, you worked with, and you come to realize what's most beneficial to you. And I realize this is my game. I, I watch people do this, not just me running up a hill. I watch people do it. I, I put hundreds and hundreds of people up and down hills just to see what happens when they do. And controlling the way they approach these hills which is way different than just going and being in a race and you know having conversation with people about what they felt they should be doing. Right. Because what you do relative to, say, someone that's shorter than you, you had made mention of you know, long legs and what have you, mm -hmm. someone shorter than you may fare better by turning their legs over quicker than you. I don't know. Uh, it's an experiment. The yeah. other thing, and if you've seen any of the videos that I've posted here and there uh, on the workout that I call peg leg, where I have people running uphill and downhill one leg at a time. Oh, we did that. Do you remember I was very bad at it and I had to do burpees? <laughs> yeah. Well, you remember how much fun it was, right? Yeah. It's painful. It was fun. Right? I was just really bad at it. Well, the point being <laughs> is that when you're running, it's a function of being on one leg at a time always. Right. So we get right back to the stability mobility issue. If you're not stable, you're going to be less capable of bombing down a hill. Makes sense. I got guys like Hunter McIntyre, who is, his tensile strength in his joints is incredible. He can come flying down a hill, bombing down, taking strides that are eight feet long. Wow. But every time he makes contact with the earth, his foot is just about beneath him. But he's got so much integrity in that landing and stability in his landing that he's able to do it with confidence. If I said, okay, now I want you to take these real big bounding strides down the mountain, you'd be a little reluctant to do it because you start to get fearful of what's going to happen when you lose control. Yeah, you want to bite it on the mountain. As a matter of fact, I had one guy, his name escapes me right now. He's probably going to hear this and he's going to be pissed that I don't remember his name. <laughs> a guy came down from Oregon and we were having this experiment. I said, okay, Turn your legs over faster coming down the hill. Come down slower, you know, bomb down. The, we tried all these different approaches. And this guy come ripping down this hill with his cadence at about 200, lost control, and slid to my feet face first. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> he ate it. And he got up, and he goes, I'm okay, I'm okay. And he's like, he was, I mean, the guy had road rash everywhere, right? Oh. It was trail rash, really. And, I'm just uh, I like to roll down the mountain like in Princess Bride like yeah. as you wish I've done that before <laughs> so I says to him I said my well, strategy I said well uh 
that may not be the way you'll approach this from now on. <laughs> no. That that clearly is not the way you want to come down a mountain. No. So um, again, I don't really I don't really lead people into a particular process when it comes to terrain like that, but I definitely want them to experiment with it and find out what's best for them. And I may not I'm not not I may I will help to guide them into what the approach might be for them based on what we see. And I will cool. guide them on some various nuances of approaching the technique that they, they climb or descend off of the hill. But from a standpoint of me saying, oh, no, no, you got to be at 180 strides per minute, maybe not. But I could tell you that being at 150 or 160 strides per minute isn't going to be better because you're going to be on the ground longer. And that's just more gravitational force that you're dealing with. It's, it's problematic. So quicker is actually better. Okay. Okay. And then uh, we have one here, Victoria Vignette. She's our, um, our fabulous physical therapist extraordinaire at Spartan Pro, uh, one of our ambassadors too. Uh, her question, um, how do I check my ego at the door? Stop trying to train myself and entrust my efforts in someone else's hands. You know, I really enjoyed that question from her. And since I know her, I understand where she's coming from. Um, but I got to tell you, I don't think any athlete should train themselves. I don't care who you are. You need that outside intervention. You need somebody to look at you and help you make decisions. Now, certainly she's educated and she has some feelings about what she should or should not do. But I don't even think it's an ego thing, right? It's like when you know something, it's not a function of ego. It's just, you know, you're at ends with what someone might offer you to do because you see that it might be contrary to what be the right thing to do. Right. But at the same token, for example, uh, I I don't know if I should even do this. I have I'm not going <laughs> to use a name. Okay, I have athletes that will call me. Generally, they call me when they get into trouble. But they are wise enough to reach out and have someone that they trust offer some advice. And that might be a function of talking about race strategy. That might be a function of when to taper. That might be a function of um, reviewing a particular workout to decide whether it's the right thing to do, when to do it. But what happens with most athletes is they just feel compelled to work. They need to work. That's what they do. And they commonly do too much. And sometimes, if it's nothing more than having somebody rein you back, protect you from you, that that's good advice. So I don't know whether... Uh, Victoria's asking whether she should hire a coach. Um, I just don't think you should defend yourself in court. <laughs> right? Sage, sage advice. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, yeah. The, the analogy I use a lot with people is like, so, okay, you get into trouble and you're in big trouble. I mean, somebody's accusing you of murder and you can go in there and defend yourself. Or you could try to find, mortgage your home and try to hire F. Lee Bailey, right, <laughs> to get out right. of trouble. Now, uh, not everybody can afford F. Lee Bailey. And so maybe not everybody can afford a quality coach. But I'll tell you what, it's like an insurance policy. I have people that I work with, and really at the end of the day, they don't need me to teach them how to do things. But they definitely do well by having me in their corner like an insurance policy when things aren't going as they hoped. And we can have that conversation 
and potentially save them from themselves, save them from injury, save them from overtraining, uh, advise them in how they should approach an event based on the data we see. So we'll talk about it, Victoria. Got time for one more? Yeah, we got time for one more. Um, okay, so here's a question. Um, this is from, I honestly, Chris, I'm so sorry. I can't pronounce his last name. Um, Chris Mikolajewski. Um, when I started- Fine young Polish like, boy. Fine young Polish lad. Or maybe not a lad. Fine young Polish boy. Um, when I start a race, I get a good- start of lactic burn but it goes away after a short time is this because of my warm-up being too soon before the start of the race due to standing in the starting corral um, or what can be done to prevent it or keep it from limiting me early in the race well i know what he's talking about and it comes down to the viscosity and the pliability of your cardiovascular system so what happens with a lot of people is they're it's think about a piece of plastic okay if you start rubbing it between your fingers, you know, where initially it's a little rigid, and then you start rubbing it and you start creating some friction and some heat, it starts to expand and it becomes more malleable, more pliable. Well, your your arterial and venous system is like that too. And some people tend to be tighter, tighter uh, construction than others, where some people warm up quickly, some people need a little bit more time. But if you have vasorestriction, you're expanding, you're pumping more blood into the region, but your capillary density and all this, all this system, all these vessels are not prepared yet to expand, then you start to choke. You get this hypoxia, and then you end up developing this, this burn he's speaking of. So you're not really doing a very good job processing oxygen. You're not doing a very good job releasing heat and a metabolic byproduct you need a little bit more of a warm-up. Uh, VJ's this way. We've had this conversation on many occasions. You know, I have him do a good 20-minute warm-up before he races because he can hit the line ready to go. Uh, some people, if they, if they do a 20-minute warm-up, it's way too much for them. It, it actually is debilitating. So it's very unique to the individual, but it sounds like from, for him, that's definitely something he needs to do. He's spent a little bit more time. It might be a function of just going through functional range of motion type exercises, maybe some air squats and burpees, something like that, just to get things moving. And uh, things will loosen up for him and, and it'll come together. Uh, but the last thing you want to do is in this, be in this vasorestriction and try to go out hard because you're just going to burn up. And yeah, you're, you're going to lose a lot of time early in your race. So yep. that's my recommendation. Yep. Okay. And the same, uh, something similar, I, I know it, it affects myself and some other people too. Um, in the same vein as this, um, you know, I don't really feel like my legs get moving. I don't have the, the lactic burn that he's talking about, but my legs don't kind of wake up as some other people ask a similar question, but my legs don't wake up until a few miles in, I can start cooking a few miles in, but you know, mile one to two, maybe even more sometimes, depending on the terrain, they're kind of sleepy. Um, so How I probably just need a little bit. That's the question. Yeah. That's pr probably not enough. <laughs> Probably not. Probably about you know ten minutes. Well, um, now you look. Think about this too. Okay, when you when you get into the corral, and you're waiting for your you know they're going to sing the song about you're a Spartan, you're this or that, and you know you got to listen to somebody pontificate for a while before you get a chance to race. You might be standing there for ten minutes. Yeah, at least. Yeah. Right. So let's sure. just say that you're running around, you're warming up, 
and then you blood pool for 10 minutes. Right. <laughs> you got this, you, you know, you, you might do better just to kind of march in place while you're standing there just to kind of keep blood flow moving. You know, it's like me sitting at my desk right now. My ankles are going to swell up. <laughs> you know, you just don't want to be in that static position after you've been moving for a while because it, it, you got to get things moving again. Keep it moving. You got to okay. keep the flow going, right? Keep it, keep it moving. I can dance in place. There Good you dance go. by myself. Yeah. yeah. Do a little bit of that uh, side to side shuffle. What do they call it? A <laughs> prancer size move. Do a, I can do that. <laughs> do a stationary prancer size move. Totally, totally doable. <laughs> All right, so uh, we're getting close, and I know you got uh, some things you got to do, so we got to got to nip this in the bud. But before we go, I want to talk to the folks that are planning to be at Bonefrog. I'm so excited about being at Bonefrog. We're going to get a chance to work together, iron out some of these issues that are people are having with the way they move, the day before they get on the course, and we're going to do it on the course. I've never been able to do that before. I'm so excited about having a chance to set this up for people where we're going to introduce them to the proper way to approach an event, meaning the way they're going to move. Because you know how it works. You've seen it done. We start moving after a while, and all of a sudden, everybody looks like gazelles. Everybody's running very, very nicely. And then I go away. And then they're left to their own designs for you know months at a time, and then... You know, you hear the guy call you, yeah, dude, all I don't know what it is, but my calves are on fire. So all this stuff starts happening because they're making mistakes in my absence. I'm just not there with them every day, like the people I see on Tuesday mornings, right? So fresh off the, the grill, we've just got through showing them how to do it right. We're going to get them on the course and show them how they might want to approach the technical aspect of the terrain. Then we're going to have some people from the Bone Frog Camp Introduce them to some of the obstacles. What awesome. a novel opportunity this is, right? Yep. Anybody that was, eh, I don't know, it's 100 bucks, whatever it is, I don't think so. I'm just going to do the right. You screwed up. You screwed you done, up. You done messed up. <laughs> yeah, because there's going to be people that show up at my clinic that are going to kick your ass. There's going to be people on the podium at your clinic. That's my That's my bet. I'm going to put money on it. Yeah, well. For sure. And if they're not, I'm going to slide out of there very quietly. <laughs> ben, it's your podium chance. You can you can come on the podium that day. You'll be there. Cardboard cutout. Cardboard cutout. Life yeah. size. Maybe we could do that. It's like we could take like a picture, and we'll like if you if you podium, well I'll get up there and give you a nice hug and we'll no get pressure a, get a oh picture right, and then we'll have a cutout made and you could paste it I'll in it right there to other podiums on social media. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, so that's on the 15th of June. That's coming. That's this month, 14 days from now, right? We're here. Yeah. And we can still take a few people if they want to sign up. They're going to have to go to naturalrunningcoach.net to get the information to register. I'm not going to take too many more, though, because we've got a pretty good group already. Then the next spot is going to be Killington. Bad news. That clinic is sold out. I, I don't even think I could take another body in there. And then we're going to Atlanta. Atlanta, Georgia is going to be November. Last stop for the year is going to be Austin, Texas in December. That's it. Short of me maybe doing something again here locally, but I don't even think I'm going to have the time. I'm going to Europe in October. I'm, I'm all over the place. So anyway. Busy bee. You're, you're a busy bee, Richard. I swear to God, you know, 
I don't know. But anyway, Kristen, thank you so much for coming on and helping me do this. Thanks for having me. We might have to use you more often. Hey, whenever you need, you know. Yeah, I know. You're a stand-up guy. <laughs> <laughs> I owe you a Looking forward to the clinic very yeah, much. Yeah, I owe you a cocktail. Definitely. I'm going to fix your hamstrings and get you drunk all in one weekend. Okay, then I'll give you a 300-year-old bottle of scotch if you fix my hamstring. <laughs> that, you know, that's live, right? We've got, I've got this on audio. 300-year-old <laughs> bottle. I don't think there is yeah. a 300-year-old bottle. No, there's not. It'd probably be pretty gross. Your, your scotch of choice. Oh, no. Fix careful. my hamstring and it's Careful. <laughs> it gets expensive It has fast. to be cheaper than physical therapy over the years that I've probably Yeah, yeah. You, gotta qu- you better what. qualify what you're saying here. I know, I know. Because, uh, you know, a, f- a 40-year-old bottle of scotch, depending on who makes it, can get up around five, $6,000. Maybe plan B. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I won't hold you to it. Uh, if, okay. If you ever have another kid, you might have to name it after me. Okay, done, done. <laughs> All right. The shop is closed. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we're, uh, yeah, so is mine. But uh, anyway, thank you so much again, and uh, I'll see you in a couple weeks. Sounds good, Richard. Thank you so much. Thanks for answering all these for us. Bye-bye. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.